Programming Notes episodes, the general concept is that you can get an extended summary of episodes if you decide that you'd rather have that than listen to the episodes themselves, as well as some notes about what's going on in the community or how you can be helpful and useful in the community. Programming notes for the week of February 26, 2023. I know we are going from three episodes a week to two episodes in the next week, but there are actually four episodes this week because I thought it would make sense to break down Jamak's conversation that we had into kind of a regular Jamak's corner. And then there's a shorter one on a very specific topic that I think it's important to call out and break that out. As mentioned previously, do get in touch if you want to tell me what I should have a panel on or who I should invite. I'm really working on a lot of panels. And this intro itself is going to be longer than normal. If you want to skip to the summaries, you know, instead of it being three and a half, four minutes, it'll probably be five and a half or something like that. So secondly, I know a ton of people in this space in general. You know, that might be obvious because I've had 150 plus people on this podcast. But I'll give an example of two recent conversations and why more people should be kind of chatting with me and reaching out. Number one, a person reached out about trying to get their internal people to move past focusing only on the architectural components of data mesh. They keep saying a data mesh, data mesh architecture, a data mesh architecture, and that that's how they're actually thinking about it, not just terminology. Um, they're in kind of a specific space, so I recommended two people for them to reach out to in that space and probably have another 10 people that I could uh, recommend to them if those two people don't pan out. It, it took me two minutes to answer this person's LinkedIn message with suggestions. Second, uh, I'm working on an episode with someone leading their organization's data mesh journey, uh, and then I'm also working with them on hosting at least one panel for me. I'm really excited to work with this person. So since they're going to be doing me kind of a solid and being on the the podcast and and helping me with the panels, I'm going to be introducing them to uh, lots of folks leading their own implementations because this is what they asked me for. I said, who do you want to talk to? They said, give me people that are leading implementations. So in general, these are just two examples, but The point of this is, yes, when I leave to do my own thing in April, some of these introductions that I'll be doing will be part of the offering that I'm doing as a company. But it doesn't hurt to get in touch and ask, you know, who knows what you'll get from me? And no, vendors or consultants, this isn't for you, but feel free to tell your clients or your customers to poke me and see what they get. One thing I will note is that neither of these people were were saying, hey, Scott, do this thing for me. It was like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Do you have any advice? Or I, you know, when I'm on calls with people, I often ask, what, how can I be helpful? Right. One just had a genuine challenge and the other is, is now, you know, a a friend that I'm working with on some stuff. And so I'm paying them back for that. So my point here is that, um, there's a lot of, 
really, really valuable resources in the community that people are very, very hesitant or very bad at leveraging, don't be that person, right? Don't be demanding. Don't be like, hey, I'm going to ask for the world. But at the same point, there's a lot of people out there that want to talk to you, that want to to interact with you. And so like, especially you practitioners, you should be getting in touch with each other. So um, and my rant and getting off my soapbox, what's coming up this week on Monday, we have episode 199, finish your data marathon, driving to action from data, which is an interview with Brent Dykes. I had asked Brent on uh, after Joao Sosa talked about his work and I read some of it and then LinkedIn started suggesting some of his posts that same week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> maybe because I checked his profile, but still a little sketchy. Anyway, Brent and I had a great chat about what it means to actually finish your analytics, right? Far too many companies get stuck in at best generating insights, but often only kind of generating and processing the data and maybe doing a little bit of analysis, but not really generating insights. How can you move from that to generating the insights to communicating the insights in such a way that people understand what actions can be taken? And then how do you actually move and take those actions and why so many people fail at at kind of moving down that last bit? On Wednesday, we have episode 200. Yay! That's Jamax Corner 19, an AI and ML future without so much, you know, kind of needless complexity. Part one of the end of my last conversation with Jamax, what might AI and ML look like if we make life that much easier for data scientists? How can we reduce the burden on them so they can trust, they can get the data they need instead of becoming kind of data hoarders? How could this transform or make, you know, Jmack has kind of talked about this. We have way too many differentiations around every little bit that we do around data. Can we stop doing some of that? You know, yes, we need to have people that know how to build models and do the statistics and all that fun stuff in data science. But a lot of the ways that they can interact with data can just be the same as everybody else, right? Like, how can we do that? On Thursday, there's a bonus kind of shorter Jamax Corner, which is Jamax Corner 19.5. How does AI and ML change when trust is automatic? This is, you know, a, a mini bonus episode. One thing that resonates through just about every conversation I have on this podcast is trust, right? Trust, what happens if we actually add trust? What happens when we lose trust? Why is trust so important in data? Jamax covered some of that kind of concept of trust extremely well in Jamax's corner. You know, the data can't protect itself. But what actually happens when trust becomes automatic? That you don't have to verify. You know, you trust but verify. No, you just trust, right? This is mostly about kind of the AI ML, but a lot of it is is not really any specific to the AI ML, just like I was talking about with Jamax Corner 19 about this stuff doesn't have to be overly specific and what happens when we actually can trust. Then on Friday, we have episode 201, Choose Your Blast Radius and Other Lessons Learned Across Tens of Data Mesh Implementations. This is an interview with uh, Vanya Seth from ThoughtWorks. A really fun and enlightening conversation here. Vanya is the global guild leader, I can't remember the exact title, for for Data Mesh at ThoughtWorks. She has a ton of 
really interesting and useful insights from talking with so many people about data mesh internally at, at ThoughtWorks, and they're working with so many customers, right? A biggie that came out of this that some people have emphasized a little bit, but she really explains well is limiting your blast radius for failures, but not limiting kind of your upside and your potential to iterate and learn and kind of the, the importance of tight feedback loops, but in making it so that Failure isn't such a bad thing. It's not such a big deal. It's okay, whoopty frickin' do, instead of, oh, this was something that was such a bad outcome. Like, how do we get to that? I think you'll learn a lot from, from this one. So with that, on to the extended summaries for Brent's and, and Wanya's episodes this week. Extended summary for episode 199, Finishing Your Data Marathon, Driving to Action from Data, an interview with Brent Dykes. So in this episode, I interviewed Brent, who's the chief of data storytelling at his own firm, Analytics Hero. I'd asked Brent to be on after Joao Sosa pointed me to a bunch of Brent's content, and he just kept coming up in my feed, and, and I thought <laughs> I enjoyed his content. So... Brent started with a bit about his background and why he titled his, his book, Effective Data Storytelling, How to Drive Change with Data, Narrative, and Visuals. There are a few places many organizations fall down in driving change via their analytics, whether that is a failure to generate actual insights, a failure to communicate insights well enough to drive action, or a failure to actually take action on the insights. He's most focused on the communication of insights, a place that's often overlooked, right? Where you think, I, I get to my insights and I take my action, but you've got to have that in between. You, you can find the best insights in the world, but if you can't communicate those insights well enough, no one will understand them and or understand the potential impact of acting on them. Commun communicate well enough to drive change, right? Uh, the analytics marathon is one of Brent's big analogies for explaining where organizations fail along the path to taking action on their data on their insights. There is data collection, which pretty much all organizations do. Then data prepar preparation that feeds into data visualization and reporting. But this is where many orgs fall off because they're simply reporting on what's happening, that descriptive analytics, and not actually driving to diagnostic analytics, not really driving towards insights. Instead of doing deeper analysis, they believe their problems lie in what data is collected, so they try to collect more data, thinking it's simply a lack of information instead of a lack of analysis. And then, of course, once you do the analysis, you still have to communicate and then take action. But a lot of these, these companies fall into kind of the, the lure of the data lake and the kind of data field of dreams of if you collect it, value will come, right? For Brent, a, common, a few common indicators an organization will likely have a good analytics practice are one, an executive sponsor for being or becoming 
data driven. You know, he mentioned even if the entire leadership team is there, then it, if they're really behind, you know, really leveraging data well, you're going to see most of the time that they can get to a good practice, even if they're not right now. Number two would be a general commitment to driving actions from data where possible. It's kind of quote unquote, how we do things. Number three, a test and learn culture in the organization that's supported by data. As many episodes just keep talking about of test and learn, iterate, improve type feedback loops. If an organization isn't yet data-driven and they aren't doing data you know, analytics that well, Brent recommends getting to wins and slowly moving your executive sponsorship up the ladder. It might start at a senior manager or director level. And then after you build momentum, you, you build up some wins, people will take notice and you can climb to you know, the senior director and the VP level and then the C-suite level. It's about showing the value of analytics and plugging along so you have proof points when you move the conversation higher in the organization. Rome wasn't built in a day and neither is a good organization-wide analytics practice. As data initiatives have become more ambitious, it's often meant ownership has become more murky, according to Brent. What was you know, what was once data that was essentially only for the generating team, you know, the producing team of the data is now a potential core value asset and driver for the organization. And that opens you up for much more misunderstanding because it's now being handed off to teams that don't really understand how it's collected and why and how it's being processed and all of that. Focusing on making sure information is understood not just data is made available, is crucial to making good decisions with your data. There's often what the metric means and what others assume it means. Brent shared his views that we need both active and passive ways of sharing context around data, right? Around metadata of, of what this data actually is. Passive is, is just that kind of metadata. It's the documentation and things like that. If we want to scale, passive Communication around data is crucial. Self-service can't just be a pipe dream. But too often, people in data want to only do passive and ignore the people-to-people conversation. But that often that's key to the nuanced or, or you know, the crucial to working data with, with key people making big decisions based on data. If people are really, really going to be using this for something important, it makes sense to spend the extra time with them to make sure they understand what it's talking about, what you're doing with it. For thousands of years, humans have been passing information via stories. Human brains have evolved to share information and take in information via stories. We inherently want to know where the story goes, right? Human nature. For Brent, mastering that storytelling with data and about data is the best way to convey the information we generate and discover with our data, right? If you don't communicate insights to those who can take actions in a way they can understand, they probably won't take those actions, right? For Brent, execs rarely want to hear how the sausage was made via data. You want to show them what you've discovered and what they should do with that, not how you came upon it. It can be important to show People, the sausage making isn't that hard, though, especially trying to enable a team to do self-serve analytics. Really consider which is more appropriate to the situation. If you're trying to get somebody bought into what you found, 
Don't spend all the time about how you found it and, you know, the exact process versus what does this mean? But if you're trying to get people on board, show them this, this isn't that hard. It's pretty easy to like what the data is saying and point to the data as backing you up when you agree with it in Brent's experience. And this comes up quite a bit as well. But a truly data-driven culture will focus on updating their thoughts and processes based on what the data says, improving their understanding via the data instead of trying to bend the data to support their hypotheses. It's about getting to a place where you try to remain more neutral until you hear what the data says, then you shape your vision and your thoughts around that, right? That can be really hard for a lot of people that have been relying on their their intuition and their gut and their experience because the data hasn't been there. They haven't been able to leverage it. So they've had to go on their own. And now, you know, you want to have, you want to make it so that they can actually feel like they can, they can do that right? That they can leverage that data and that they're not being replaced by the data, right? The data is not making the decision. On kind of the semantics of data-driven versus data-informed, like what we're trying to get to, Brent likes the idea of data-driven. For him, that really means leaning into the data instead of just kind of being like, eh, the data is telling me some things, but like leaning in is data-driven. Part of that is understanding and accepting that sometimes the data is wrong or we didn't ask the, the question in the right way. That's, that's just getting to data maturity. And data-driven companies recognize the value of learning. There's still value from experiments and moves that didn't have as much benefit as expected when you start to dig into the why. You have incremental understanding, even if not direct incremental business value. You know, this thing, we thought it was going to up our sales 10%. It upped our sales 2% or didn't have any impact or whatever okay, why you got incremental value from saying, okay, this actually isn't a lever or this lever isn't nearly as strong as we thought it would be. And it sets you up to do better on your next iteration around data, right? Um, And and on that same uh, kind of process. When asked about where will business analysts fit in data storytelling in the future, Brent sees them like personal trainers. They won't be doing as much of the work, but showing people how and insisting them until they can get to a level, the the business analysts aren't that needed in their day-to-day work. That's for the analysis and especially the insight communication. Pure self-service analytics is nice in theory, but you need a way for people to get help and make sure they aren't hurting themselves. If more people are far more capable, that also means that the business analysts can focus on the more valuable, larger scale, like complex questions, right? As you're you're building these other people up, you can really focus on those kind of, you know, as a personal trainer, as those really unique, interesting routines for yourself as well as learning things for that are going to be useful for other folks.
Extended summary for episode 201, choose your blast radius and other lessons learned across tens of data mesh implementations, an interview with Wanya Seth. So in this episode, I interviewed Wanya, who is the head of technology for ThoughtWorks India and the global data mesh lead for ThoughtWorks. To be clear, though, she was only representing her own views. So Wanya started with a bit about her background and how deeply entrenched she's been in the microservices space. That played into the overall conversation a lot about the microservices background. Both Wanya and I agree if we want to do data mesh right, we should really take learnings from microservices and DevOps so we don't have to relearn what they already did learn the hard way. For Wanya, data mesh is at a similar inflection point to where microservices was a decade ago. People were extremely skeptical that developers and operations could even work together, much less around combining them in a singular approach with DevOps. It's hard to imagine a post-monolith world when all your career and experience are with monoliths. We have to be somewhat kind to those people in understanding that a change change in general is hard and scary, and a change that big is very hard and very scary. But as a counter for data mesh, Fanya believes, and, and I agree, we must try to prevent creating the same fear of missing out, you know, that FOMO that microservices had. For many, if your organization wasn't doing microservices, it wasn't seen as a cool place to work and that all the best developers were at companies doing microservices. We don't want that in data mesh because it will lead to lots of wasted effort for companies that shouldn't be doing data mesh now or or potentially even ever. According to Anya, there are a few really good indicators an organization might be ready for data mesh. Before we get into the three she listed, a few things that might be indicative of indicators are constant uh, displeasure of the kinds of initiatives they've been doing in the data and AI space. There's a constant pressure to prove the value of data and AI investments in general, but really an inability to do so at the kind of broad scale or even at the individual data and AI project investments. Long and lengthening cycles to return uh, on data work projects is another, and a biggie is an ever-growing platform that is trying to do too much and, and hasn't really been delivered, right? They're trying to boil the ocean. They keep adding new features, and maybe a few people are using it, but in general, it's just kind of meh. So the three indicators data mesh could be a good fit for you that uh, Wanya actually listed were number one, Investments in data and AI aren't delivering expected value, and it's hard to actually point to the value that is being delivered. Users aren't getting kind of, quote unquote, the right data at the right time with the right quality. Number two, large and growing central data teams where trying to scale is done by throwing more people at the problem, and it just isn't working. When automation would be better, they add people. And number three, confusion around who owns data when and why, who owns the handoff between systems, who owns the documentation and metadata around data. When someone has a question, how hard is it to find who owns the data? And, you know, uh, the Max Schultz episode when he talked about he went to uh, a team and they said, oh, no, this isn't ours. And then he spent multiple weeks trying to do it. And then he found out that the actual owner was that team and they didn't even know they owned it. We had a team that was owning something and had no idea that they actually owned it. So 
Vanya highly recommends using value stream mapping to understand how you drive value with business processes and especially where are value leakages. This can be done you know, with data or not. It, it should be applied to both analytical and operational data processes. You should be thinking about how does value actually flow instead of just how does the bits and bytes flow. You can understand better your business processes and expected outcomes. If something didn't meet expectations, was that because expectations were wrong or did something happen along the way to lose that value? Value stream mapping gives you an objective and neutral starting point and helps identify problem areas, you know, that value leakage, where then you can prioritize what to tackle first among that leakage. But if you don't know where the value is leaking, then you're just trying to tackle it all at once. In microservices, Wanya pointed to how challenging service discovery started to become until tooling came along. She specifically mentioned console as a tool. So we really don't have to reinvent everything in data mesh. There are tools out there, especially those in the open source space and that are making really nice progress. She specifically also mentioned uh, LinkedIn Data Hub as kind of a tool that's making a lot of progress compared to where they it was like two years ago and all these other tools the same at the infancy of bleeding edge data mesh adoption, right? We've had people that are doing more decentralized approach for a few years now. And so the tools are getting better to support that because they, they started to know what they actually need to do. Overall, we should one, look to existing tools to see if we can use them as is. Two, look to extend existing tools where possible to cover incremental needs specific to data mesh. And then only number three, look to create new tooling that is required for data specific challenges in data mesh. Again, don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to. For Vanya, one thing many organizations struggle with in data mesh is the self-serve platform. What, what is the actual goal? Circling back to an earlier point, it's not about building the most amazing ocean boiling platform. It's about stitching tools together to automate the toil away. How can you create a holistic user experience to focus on doing the value add? The value of the platform to the users is these abstractions away from the tools that make it easy to focus on what needs to be done to drive value from data, not play with the shiny tools. Focus on enabling interacting with the data, not interacting with the tools of the platform. A big focus for Wanya, and this is why we chose this as the uh, title, was choose your blast radius. It's a key phrase for her. Think about scope appropriately and don't try to bite off more than you can chew. Again, that don't boil the ocean. You don't have to reorganize your entire organization on day one to do data mesh. That is far too much of an upfront cost and makes failures a massive cost. Look at how it was done in microservices. Thin slices. Don't take a sledgehammer to the monolith. Gradual evolution is sustainable. A revolution either succeeds or it doesn't. Don't take on risk that isn't actually beneficial. If you don't need to do a revolution, why take on that risk? Wanya said as well, quote unquote, nothing seeds like success itself. It's crucial to get to an early win or two with your data mesh journey to show off to the rest of the organization and proving data mesh delivers value and, and gets them interested in participating. You know, kind of that, hey, we did this and it was a big win. Who's next? 
it's not just about showing value. It's about showing there was a reasonable encapsulated timeline, not just promises, that incremental value delivery creates momentum. And the more momentum you have, the more you can get people on board. As many past guests have noted, it is pretty bad, you know, I I would even say fully terrible idea to build the platform and then bring it to the users when it's done. There are far too many unexpected friction points and finding those and tackling and automating away the friction is where the platform adds value to the users, not the bells and whistles. You want to find those friction points as they emerge and work on tight feedback loops. That's product thinking. And if you don't make evolvability a first-class concern of your platform, you are not building your platform as a product. And part of data as a product is building the things that help you, enable you to create data products in a productized way as well. For Vanya, it's pretty easy for tech people to focus on the tech, whether that is in data or not. But the overall organization, they don't care about the tech, right? They care about what what they can do. So it's crucial to find the ubiquitous language and make your implementation and platform about what are people trying to do. The user isn't accessing S3. They're accessing the inbound marketing conversion data product. S3 is simply a mechanism to accessing the data and the insights. When considering your thin slice earlier in your data mesh journey, it's okay to have a very unbalanced slice of the different pillars, right? You might have uh, a whole lot where you've done a whole lot on the, the platform side because there's needs, although I wouldn't say that's a, a great use case to pick. But you know, it can be that you really, really focus on the data as a product and that you're less focused on the domain ownership or whatever. Th- this has been mentioned before, but it's important to re- reiterate. If you only need a bit of one of the pillars, but you do need more capability in another of the pillars, that's absolutely okay. Don't build today for all the problems of six months or one year or three years from now. You want to focus on tackling the toil of today. What's the friction of today? And that's how you think about things in a productized way, right? You don't just keep bolting on features. You do think about things as evolving as a platform, but you also don't have to, to, you don't want to become a feature factory. So some quick tidbits to wrap up. Uh, Vanya's phrase of innovation in queue is when an organization keeps putting their innovation agenda, they keep pushing it off, right? For more immediate concerns. Everything innovative ends up getting deprioritized in the queue. So your innovation is always in queue. Another one, most data mesh journeys are taking six to seven months to really prove out data mesh value and and that they can do data mesh. And a note that I had here is this seems to be standard for larger organizations, but uh, a complete POC means faster follow-on for additional use cases, right? So you can do one, people have talked about doing one in eight weeks, but then you're just kind of getting to some incremental learnings and you're not really building up a bunch that makes it easier and easier to add incremental products. So it's all a balance, right? And, and each organization is going to be uh, a little bit different. Sorry, that one wasn't that quick. Uh, in some organizations, if data is not really valued, the CDOs or CAOs are looking to implement data mesh to show the value of data in general. But their organizations aren't often aren't ready and trying to do data mesh just creates more challenges than benefits. So if you're in that kind of a spot, data mesh isn't going to fix your problems. 